Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. My dad will be so grateful. See you next time on the Mindful Fire Podcast. Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast, where we explore living mindfully on the path to financial independence and beyond. On today's episode, we'll speak with my friend, Lori Schwanbeck, a psychotherapist, executive coach, and mindfulness instructor and curriculum designer in the San Francisco Bay Area. In this episode, we'll learn how Lori first got interested in mindfulness, despite being quite averse to the idea. We'll learn how and why Lori transitioned from a career in marketing to a career in psychotherapy and executive coaching with mindfulness at the center of both. And Lori shares her thoughts on why it's so important to tune in to your body. And we'll learn about the difference between coaching and therapy. We'll also hear Lori's top advice for people looking to develop a regular meditation practice. We'll learn how Lori intentionally designs her life and her business by combining multiple streams of income through the various aspects of her business. And we'll get Lori's thoughts on how to find a niche in a crowded market by tuning in to what interests you most. And finally, we'll get Lori's top advice for people looking to build a career in the mindfulness field. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode with my friend Lori Schwanbeck. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to have you here, and uh, I'm excited to have you share your story with our audience. And I am delighted to be here. Um, love what you're doing, and I love sharing and supporting um, you and other people in this field. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's start with a little bit about your backstory um, and kind of uh, kind of your professional backstory, your life backstory, and then also kind of how you got into mindfulness. Okay. Such a big question. Um, I know that, that is a big one. Uh, put a lot <laughs> think, on the first question. Well, I think relevant to us today, uh, I have a business background. I'm from Canada and I um, have a, a background in marketing. And when I was working in the marketing business realm, uh, I had a lot of fun. It was enjoyable, but I realized that um, selling stuff, and product marketing, which is what I was doing, was not ultimately fulfilling. And I was much more interested in um, people. And I figured, well, if I could sort of understand people well enough to have them make a behavior change, in this case, it was purchasing a product, then I could use that same skill set of understanding behavior change. But instead of having them oriented towards buying a thing, it was more about um, how to change behavior in ways that supported um, well-being very interested in um, the the building of lives, of engagement, of happiness, of thriving, well-being. So I quit my job, moved to California, and studied uh, what's called transpersonal psychology, which is a blend of Western, more positive psychology, and um, Eastern uh, practices around meditation and mindfulness. And you know, quite honestly, Adam, at that point, I was, I, I had a lot of judgment about meditation. <laughs> I, was, um, I grew up in a very pragmatic um, 
Canadian hardworking um, family where whose value was on doing and the idea of being was associated with laziness and you know also going through you know an education a business school and uh, focus on uh, more materialism again the idea of just sitting my idea of meditation was just sort of belly button gazing at the time so I had a lot of judgment and yet in my life the experiences I've had of just being still and quiet and more contemplation uh, especially in nature have always been very important to me I just didn't really think that was meditation but it was actually my experience with psychology and really understanding um, buddhist psychology and how training of the mind through meditation and mindfulness practices could be so supportive of psychological and physiological well-being so that was really my doorway in um, was looking at the impact on the mind and um, also the neuroscience, frankly, of, of watching how training attention with intention can lead to these host of benefits and can change our brain in ways that really help us live a better life. So that's kind of that part of the journey. So I've been practicing as a um, psychotherapist for the last um, 17 years. And I initially was introduced to mindfulness-based treatment by getting trained in something called dialectical behavior therapy, which is a type of therapy that integrates mindfulness as its core principle in terms of treatment. And there's been a lot of research done on it, and it's um, highly studied. And um, treatment outcomes are very, very um, efficacious really in treating a wide range of emotion dysregulation disorders. And so I was running emotional intelligence uh, mindfulness groups for a number of years in my clinical practice. And then one day I came across the uh, curriculum for the Search Inside Yourself program. This was just the time when it spun out from being offered at Google. And I saw this curriculum, I thought, wow, this is exactly what I've been teaching in my clinical practice. And it um, is, you know, geared towards a non-clinical population. So the thought of having the ability to scale what I was doing beyond just working with people who have uh, who would find themselves in a therapist's office um, was really exciting to me. So that's the genesis. Hmm. I'm interested in how, given your skepticism, your kind of judgment towards meditation and mindfulness initially, mm-hmm. how you ended up choosing this transpersonal kind of lens of psychotherapy. That's a really Great question. Nobody's asked me that before. Um, I think because at the time I was looking for, because I was interested in people and human behavior, and I was looking more so to frameworks that support people thriving rather than orienting towards trauma and uh, more the kind of what you might think of as more traditional psychology, which is really helping people who might 
have um, like from a problem oriented lens, really important work. But my interest was more looking at let's look at the tail end of the bell curve where people are actually thriving and get curious about what are those people doing that supports optimal functioning and let's apply that more broadly that in ways that can support people who are really struggling but also help up level people who really want to feel more of a sense of aliveness engagement and um, purpose in their life so I specifically looked for a type of psychology that um, was yeah, not just problem focused, but also um, in the realm of, in the West, what we call positive psychology, which is really helping people to not just survive, but to thrive. Interesting, interesting. So it was, it was looking at that interest in people and helping them kind of thrive in their lives and rather than kind of looking at the fixing of problems or issues that people are having that led you to this particular discipline, it sounds right. like. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and kind of how did the mindfulness component um, manifest in kind of the day-to-day uh, clinical practice with the people you were working with? Um, I, have you know it's interesting because many type there's so many different types of therapy one can practice but almost all of them look at some component of where you place your attention and looking at how the mind generates thoughts how we relate to emotions and different types or different schools of therapy might call it something different But when I came across the research on mindfulness, I really saw that, oh, that's what so many different types of therapy are pointing to. And this was just much more of a a clear, elegant, systematic training of the mind. Um, And so in a clinical room, it might be becoming aware of one's thoughts. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, you do a thought record, you like write out your thoughts. So in that way, you know, just like in meditation practice, it cultivates the ability to observe the phenomena of your mind. Um, in Hakomi, which is another type of therapy that I've been trained in, it's really about bringing mindfulness, bringing awareness to the body and a recognition that when we, when a person is, um, you know, in Hakomi, we talk about there's the story and then the storyteller. And so we become interested, not just in the content of one's experience, but how does that impact you? And most of the impact can be discovered by tracking what happens in the body. So it's not like massage or any um, types of therapeutic body work, but it was more about body awareness and recognizing that we can drop beneath the story we tell ourselves and really feel into more authentic layers of who we are and what matters to us when we begin to track the sensations of the body. So those are just two examples of you know, working with the body, working with thoughts. And actually one more, if we want to bring emotions in, um, is in the realm of the dialectical behavior therapy, which is the other type of therapy that I've been trained in. Um, the recognition that emotions uh, drive so much of our behavior, not all of it, and the ability, just like 
with cognitive behavioral therapy to recognize thoughts. With DBT, there's a dialectal behavior therapy. There's the capacity to witness one's emotional state and then develop the wisdom. They call it wise mind. And then that's like observing mind to recognize, is this an emotion that I want to follow the action? Like if I'm feeling a feeling of anger, is it wise to follow that anger and get really upset with a coworker or is it important to actually learn how to regulate that? Um, so each of those different types of therapies have interventions that arise from being aware, aware of thoughts, aware of the body, aware of emotions that I think are important and imperative to live a life of um, health, well-being, and ultimately satisfaction in one's life. Otherwise, we just get whipped around by, you know, <laughs> these thoughts or emotions in ways that we might, that might lead us to create lives that aren't optimal for ourselves. Yeah, I can, I can definitely uh, relate to that, uh, <laughs> to both the getting jerked around by emotions and thoughts and not even being aware of the story that's going on in my head for many, many years and kind of being blown away when I started to realize and started to practice meditation and really see what's that stream, what's of, of thought and emotion. And, mm -hmm. and then kind of taking it to the, the second thing you mentioned of body awareness of really, how do these things show up? How do these thought uh, these emotions show up in my body is something I'm still really working on. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, when you are working with, people on that second piece of the body piece is it is it just like a body scan or kind of what uh, practical practices can people do to train that ability i think a body scan is a great practice um and it's you know definitely of course a meditation to do in clinical practice and not just in my clinical practice, but when I'm teaching um, in different environments as well, um, organizations, groups, schools, I generally like to track, have just point people as they're speaking about something to their bodies. Like, so when you're talking about the situation with your, you know, your son and having to take care of him, well, working from home, like what do you notice happens in your body? When you're thinking about whether or not you want to stay in this job, let's just like notice what happens when I say to you, Adam, you should leave your job right now. Notice what happens. Take a big breath. And then notice what happens when I say, Adam, you should stay in your job right now. In other words, give people prompts and then just see what happens in their own physiology. So that's, it's a more targeted use of body awareness than, than um, the body scan, which is you know, more comprehensive. This is giving some prompt or stimuli and seeing what the impact is in the body. Interesting, yeah. And, and would you say that people have the bodily awareness baseline to be able to notice that? Because I feel like for me, like, you know, I, before I, uh, I mean, really the thing that kind of opened this up for me was doing a 10 day silent retreat 
uh, one of the Go Goenka retreats that we've mm -hmm. talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, really like that, you know, just focusing on sensations in the body kind of cultivated that and it kind of lasted for a time afterwards where I was like, okay, I'm actually a lot more in tune with kind of more subtle sensations. And so I'd be able to respond to, you know, I, my I'd be able to tune in more to the actual physiological sensations that are a reaction to whatever your prompt is. So I'm wondering, you know, is that something that people need to develop or that most people just, they are able to, to kind of tap into to some, to some degree? I think it really varies. I think there's levels of sensation that we can track. I have found in my experience, at least, that most people can sense if their jaw is tight. Mm -hmm. Most people will be able to feel a sensation in their belly. Like there's these areas of the body where the nervous system um, is more likely going to send out signals of tension um, or changes in um, heart rate or um, temperature. And so generally people can track that. If you have more practice, like certainly a 10-day Goenka retreat will give you, or just you know more familiarity with tracking right. the body, you'll be able to pick up more subtle signals. And so the more you do that, the increase in self-awareness for sure. Um, but most people can track the more gross signals, especially in the jaw and belly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it sounds like a very interesting way, you know, working with a therapist or even, you know, with someone who's just giving these prompts and having mm -hmm. you really think about it and reflect back to the other person, what you're feeling can be super helpful to give you insight that otherwise would just go unnoticed. That's right, right. I think, you know, we over-index on the thinking mind so much and there's this misperception that our thoughts or our rational processes are what guide us. And as you know, it's, um, there's this whole other processing system, which is called the implicit processing system, which is beneath the threshold of awareness. And that's what we're tapping into when we feel in the body. And that's really what drives our thinking and our behavior much more than our cognition. Um, so I've seen many people just get stuck in weighing pros and cons forever in the rational realm. Uh, and then when they begin to drop into the body, they have access to a much wider repertoire of impulses and awareness that, that can help. Interesting. Yeah. So um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, you know, I'd love to understand kind of how, you know, it sounds like you started down the mindfulness route uh, in your practice, in your um professional kind of therapy practice, mm -hmm. how did it start to become more uh, than that and kind of doing it in other, um, other contexts, maybe in the business setting or other things, kind of how did that transition happen for you? Well, I started teaching um, other therapists and other healthcare providers how to integrate mindfulness in their clinical work. Um, I started doing that about 12 years ago. Uh, so I was an early um, teacher, I guess you could say, of bringing mindfulness into the clinical realm. So a lot of comfort and familiarity in teaching groups. 
then, as I said, I found this search inside yourself curriculum and I thought like that is so much what I do in the clinical realm. And I was asked to teach search inside yourself um, when they first spun out from Google and became their own nonprofit. So I was a, one of the first teachers of the search inside yourself program. And so through that have been teaching mindfulness-based emotional intelligence around the world. And um, I still see clients individually. I still do clinical work, but I also do coaching, mindfulness-based coaching. So my teaching within organizations also offers me a stream of potential individual clients that I work with um, outside of the the their organizational realm, but in a coaching capacity with a mindfulness focus. Uh, I also develop curriculum for other organizations that, that hire me to develop courses. And I love doing that. I love training other people to do it and creating experiences for people to really get what mindfulness is. Because my training as a clinician actually is very experience-based. And so, um, I bring that into designing curriculum as well. So the doorway is really through the search inside yourself teaching, but that has opened up other possibilities where I design and facilitate curriculum for other organizations. Interesting. Yeah. It's like a million, million questions popping into <laughs> my head. So where, which way to go? Um, yeah. Um, how did you originally get connected with Silly? The Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Well, um, in full disclosure, it's it's all about who you know, I guess. I um, of course. <laughs> my um, partner is Mark Coleman, who is a meditation teacher and right. at Spirit Rock, and he was initially approached again through someone he knows who knows um, who knew the people who were starting the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, Got and it. so he was the one who. I was looking at his material. He's like, this is totally up your alley. And so <laughs> it was, um, yeah, pure and simple nepotism. There you go. <laughs> Just total fortune, great fortune. Yeah. The way things happen, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Interesting. And, um, but just to say to that, I mean, yeah. I was greatly fortunate, but for people who might not have the fortune to know someone directly like that, I would say that, in all of life, it's leveraging connections. Like relationships are so important. You know, yours and my relationship is of important. Um, yeah. So, so to really take care of your relationships and your network because that's where doors will open and opportunities arise from. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and just to kind of let everyone know on uh, the audience, you know, Lori and I know each other through the Search Inside Yourself program because we, we actually taught the program together uh, at Google. And uh, a lot of my kind of development as a facilitator is, is due to teaching with Lori and others. So I'm very grateful to have done that with you um, because those opportunities have become fewer and far between, um, more, more few and far between because there are a lot more facilitators now. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that, um, let's see what I have here. Yeah, as you, you know, I know that there are a lot of um, 
people uh, that have been trained to teach courses like Search Inside Yourself, other other programs, and are looking to kind of make a make a go at making a career in the mindfulness space. As you know, that is what um, I'm looking to explore with this podcast. I'm interested to understand kind of if there are certain things that you did kind of as you were making this shift uh, to identify or kind of explore these opportunities to to be successful or if it kind of just kind of happened naturally for you you know again i think just like we think that we can it's our thoughts that are actually making decisions for us i think that there's so many causes and conditions that contribute to each moment so i think it's grace i think that i was great fortunate that I was in the field both as a therapist an early an early adopter to to meditation and a teacher of that in the world of therapy but also in the world of business so I was I was fortunate and there's grace and a lot of um, support that I got from people around me for sure and I am constantly developing myself. So my own practice is critical. Um, Teaching other people how to navigate the realms of their mind and heart and body. um, You've got to know that terrain. And so my own practice is really, really critical. It keeps me humble as well, um, because it's not about a curriculum. Like teaching this is really about being a guide and a co-journeyer with people. So practice, practice, practice. I'm also profoundly curious about people, about neuroscience, about what it means to be human. So I'm reading and studying and aware a lot of, um, and try and keep up with a lot of different Uh, research and writing and thinking in the field of mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and how to apply that in the world. So preparation, both in terms of your own practice, but your own learning is, Mm. is really critical. And also looking and seeing what's out there. So my current in the last year interest has really been about how mindfulness can support not just self development, but the development of relationships. And so an application to teams and creating cultures of compassion, of kindness, of connection. So within that, there's both a following what brings you alive and most curious and deepen into that because you can't know everything about everything, but having a broad survey of the different aspects and a deepening into a couple of areas that have salience for you I think is really important because then it's it's conveyed there's a meaning and um, authenticity that you bring to it and it's interesting frankly Mm. Um, but also look at where there's opportunity where the need is right like so for me I really saw that there's a lot of work being done in mindfulness and not so much yet in the realm of interpersonal or compassion so um i just got curious about that so it's both what are you interested in what is needed 
And it might be a topic area that's needed. It might be a population where you really see that it's needed. Um, so to get interested, follow that. Yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and really kind of diving in on the, the aspect that interests you and going deep on that. And, you know, if that isn't kind of the area that's covered off on by everyone else, it presents an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, you mentioned that there's kind of these, these kind of, there are various uh, types of work that you do. You have your clinical practice, you have coaching, uh, you have kind of curriculum development um, and kind of training people to develop, to deliver curriculum. Um, and um, did we cover all of them? Or there's, there's probably and a few more. Facilitation. And facilitation. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that kind of like the facilitation in either companies or different organizations kind of provides a potential source of uh, opportunity to move into the coaching and um, potentially therapy realm as well. Um, I'm curious kind of what, what, what is the difference, like how does the coaching, what does that kind of engagement look like and how is it different than therapy? Well, it's a... Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think that therapy generally has um, coaching is more pro project based almost. And recently, someone hired me because they were part of this company and they wanted to know if it was like they wanted to explore whether or not it was time for them to leave and go to a new. Um, create a new opportunity for themselves. So it's more about like a project or a specific issue that one is wanting, just like it's more time bound. Mm. Therapy might be more open-ended and more, um, you know, I'm really struggling in general with relationships in my life and I want to explore that. So it might be pointing to a little bit of a more deeper systemic um, patterning that needs to be unraveled and rebuilt. Um, so it might be a little bit more longer lasting, like a, a yeah, longer relationship. Because I am trained as a therapist, the deeper aspects of human behavior are going to come out in my coaching as well. I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but it's going to be, um, it's a little more future focused and what do I want to create and build rather than um, spending more time in a, a, a exploration of early childhood things that might have created more of the conditioning and patterning that one is moving forward in. Got it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense actually. Um, and I know that as you you know obviously uh, moved more into this. Um, mindfulness kind of teaching and facilitation uh kind of more outside of your uh, practice you know kind of your clinical practice um obviously you were trained as a search inside yourself facilitator and i think i read that you were also trained as a mindfulness teacher from through uh, jack cornfield and tara brock's program is that right yes 
Yeah, I did a two-year um, training with Jack and Tara, Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. Um, so I'm a certified mindfulness meditation teacher through them. And what was that experience like? I, I think they're actually opening that up again right now uh, mm -hmm. for either next year or something like that. Obviously, it's of interest to me as a person interested in, in mindfulness and facilitating mindfulness. Um, I'm, I guess the question I'm wondering is like, is that but like, is that necessary to, to pursue this and explore if this is something that I want to, a road that I want to go down professionally down the road? Or is being a search inside yourself facilitator enough? Or kind of what are your thoughts on that? Um, so I do, I think that the search inside yourself facilitation training is great um, and it's very secularly focused which is really good for targeting business communities and the languaging and um, structure that search inside yourself gives is is great it's a, it's really fantastic and melds well with a business community the um, hesitation I would have is if um, I mean, Search Inside Yourself does require personal practice. Some secular mindfulness teaching training doesn't put such a high emphasis on that. And I have a little bit of a concern about that because I do think that when you are guiding people to explore their minds, explore their hearts, explore their bodies, because as we said earlier, there's an over-indexing on the cognitive and rational that might enter territory that they're not familiar with. And I think without a depth of training, one risks either um, missing opportunities for people to deepen into their experience or being completely flummoxed when people drop into a level of their own experience, whether it's you know, some level of trauma or confusion or bliss that they don't have experience with and know how to hold, um, that that could be problematic as well. So the training with Jack and Tara has much more of a um, explicit Buddhist tone to it and has more of a deepening around some of the Buddhist psychology principles that aren't found in a training such as Search Inside Yourself or the more secular trainings. I think the combination is really powerful. Um, I think that your credibility when you go into an organization, if you were not to have your own personal experience in the business world, for example, or you know, if, if you wanted to go into a specific sector, like the legal field or working with first responders, it's really helpful to have a background in that yourself. If you don't, it's important to have the languaging so that you're your credibility and integrity and trust is there. So a mindfulness teacher training program in and of itself may open some doors. It might not open all the doors. It really depends on who you want to target, your, your own experience, and um, the comfort you want to have in going deep with people. Hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, is, yeah, I think that is something that I've kind of seen in, 
in facilitating search inside yourself as as well. You know, sometimes people, something's come up for people, and you know, in my own practice, I've seen quite you know a lot has come up, and it's not always easy to deal with. And okay. if you don't have a good a teacher with that experience and that knowledge of how to work with that, it's it becomes you know unhelpful at best. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, okay, that's that's very interesting. Is would you recommend that particular training program? I mean, it's virtual now, so it's good. I went right. through it was I was there f- in their first cohort, and it was live then. And I prefer live, but in this current world we're living in, um, right. virtual is good. And again, full disclosure, my partner Mark Coleman runs a mindfulness teacher training program, and it's it's I would say it's it's live, um, and they've been they've trained. Um, hundreds of people, but and it's it's much more experiential. Well, the online is great for again this circumstance and accessibility. I think there's something mm-hmm. in the live trainings that's really important because to teach mindfulness, the quality of presence that you bring is really important, and that's something that gets conveyed. I think when you're in the presence of a live teacher, so. That said, um, yes, the Jakantara training is great. You're going to be in a cohort of like a thousand plus people. Um, if you want to do it virtually, that's great. And there are other options if you want to do something in person, if that's even going to be possible in our world. So, yeah, at some point, I assume it will we'll be back so. to that, but <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, and, and if people wanted to learn more about Mark Coleman's uh, program, where could they do that? They could do that through the Mindfulness Institute. It's online. And he also runs actually a nature teacher training program. So if you're wanting to do, um, be a mindfulness teacher, integrating nature, um, that's another teacher training program that he does um, that I think is really fantastic. But that's, again, um, my bias, not only because Mark is <laughs> my partner, but also because nature is is where I do most of my practice. So. Right. And okay. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit again and, and just kind of, you know, you have all these different components of your mindful, like of bringing mindfulness into your kind of professional life. What kind of percentages would you say each one contributes to your livelihood? You know, Adam, it, it right now is different because we're right. in the middle of shelter in place. And so all of my teaching, my in-person teaching has been canceled for the year. Um, so it's drastically changed. But before that, I have made the decision to um, structure it where I was getting about 75% of my income from organizational mindfulness training and 25 from individual client work. So it was about 75, 25. And I, I like having the, I, I like doing both. So. Right. So it sounds it like a you, choice. Right. It sounds like you are designing your life, how you'd like to, where you'd like to spend your time, but both are important. So you want to make space right. for both. Right. Got it. Very interesting. All right. So let's shift gears to the mindful fire final four. Uh, <laughs> which are the final four questions. Uh-huh. And um, 
so what is something or someone that you are incredibly grateful for right now? Well, I, I, um, I would say I'm very grateful for my partner, Mark. Um, he has um, really supported my growth in this and opened doors for me. And we share a love of um, mindfulness in nature as being the doorway to presence, to something greater than, and to like um, a really deep sense of resilience, especially during these times. So um, I feel very grateful to be um, sheltering in place with someone who uh, shares the practice with mm. me. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I imagine that could be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Number, number two, what piece of advice would you give to an aspiring meditator? Someone who's just starting their practice. Meditator? Um, to start really, really small and um, really be okay with times of frustration or apathy but to start small and notice, again, for me, this is my doorway. And as we're speaking, I'm noticing this lovely arrangement of flowers that Mark brought for me, actually. And so it's just like noticing the little moments of like, what's it like to really be present with an experience and to take it in, whether it's just like, what does it feel like to bring full attention to one breath or an object of beauty or this moment of conversation and really orient to the benefit that being present can mm -hmm. provide and then build on that. So I like the tactile. I like the um, something that is engaging to point um, to the experience of deep satisfaction and connection that comes when we bring our full attention to something. So that's my suggestion is full and complete attention to one breath, to one conversation, to one thing of beauty. Mm. I can see how the nature aspect can really support that. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, cause when you're in nature, you're just like, wow, this is, this is yeah. amazing. And you're like fully there. There. And yeah. so I could see how really tuning into that can support building on that. Mm -hmm. All right. So number three, what piece of advice would you give someone who is an aspiring mindfulness professional? Well, similar to what I said before, I think that following what creates an aliveness and salience for you, like why does it matter to you? Because that's really what you're going to be conveying to others. We teach not just from what we know, but from who we are. And if we're teaching something or a way of describing something or some way of applying something that really matters to us, that becomes the invitation for others. So just to, to track what brings you most alive within the field and teach that, teach from that place. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and finally, how can people find you online and learn more about what you're working on or, or get in touch with you if they're interested? Um, my website, laurieschwanbeck.com and my email address is on that. Um, laurieschwanbeck at Gmail. And I'm woefully bad at keeping it updated. I have some resistance to creating, to selfing on a website, but um, reluctantly do it. 
I think another piece that I want to just add to what I said about both being a meditator and being a meditation or mindfulness teacher is that increasingly, Adam, this world needs us to show up fully. Like we have this one life and to be fully present in it, connected to ourselves, connected to each other and the world around us, and then to be inviting other people into that exploration I cannot think of anything more important, really. And from that, you know, wise action comes and whether it's political action or environmental action or social action in some way. So um, that the practice isn't just about the self. It's really recognizing mm -hmm. how the self is embedded as part of a community, as part of a world. Um, and we need this right now. So I, my encouragement is do it. It's, it's needed. So. That's, yeah, I think that's a great place to end. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Lori. Uh, I will put your, your website in the, the show notes when I post this. And um, I just want to say thank you so much again for, for making the time and for sharing your experience and wisdom with me, most <laughs> importantly as well, uh, and um, our audience as well. So thank you so much. My pleasure, truly, Adam. It's, um, it's such a delight. And I'm excited that you're offering this to, uh, for yourself and to other people. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Mindful Fire podcast. If you got value from today's episode, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this or watching this. This just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. Mm -hmm.